0: Uh, But anyways, we are uh, in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. And as you're turning there, um, I just want to uh, talk about this because I was reading and I was doing some studying for this lesson. There was once this guy, his name was Thomas Carlyle. Now Thomas Carlyle was a renowned philosopher, historian, and and lecturer during the 1800s in Scotland. And he, uh, he came up with what he called the great man theory of history. Now, what he proposed is this, and he once stated in one of his lectures that the history of the world is a biography of great men. Now, Carlyle was one of the leading proponents of this theory, this quote unquote great man theory of history, and it sought to sort of explain the course and explain the events of human history by the impact of these supposed great men. Now, these pivotal figures that he selected, he chose throughout time, would change the world through either their force of personality or their strength of character, their, their mental prowess or maybe even their politi- political skill or whatever. But these great men would change the world. And he proposed that, um, that it was through the influence of these men that the world turned, basically. And through his most famous work, it's a collection of his lectures, it's called On Heroes, Hero Worship, and the Heroic in History. And throughout these lectures, Carlyle proceeds to explain and he expounds how these great men would go on to change the world and actually change human history as we know it. Now, what's interesting is, is the list that Carlyle had developed of his great men. Because in this book of, on heroes, he includes men like William Shakespeare, Martin Luther, uh, Rousseau, Alexander Cromwell, and Napoleon Bonaparte, among others. That's, that's quite a list. Quite a list of quote unquote great men or heroes. But it was his conviction. That it was through a meditation, or a consideration of these great men, that we would be able to see the, the hero inside of us. That sounds sort of motivational speakerish. <laughs> but he, he said in a lecture that we cannot look, however imperfectly, upon a great man, without gaining something by him. And he would go on to say that society is founded on hero worship. And he believed that it was to greater degrees of maturity that we would grow if we would meditate and and we would uh, consider these heroes, these great men. So he believed. I would like to say, how has that turned out? (laughs) But I can't help but think that a lot of Christians, a myriad of believers, have been likewise sucked into a familiar or a, a similar idea of hero worship. Now, I think many Christians have been deceived by a similar idea, a similar theory that seeks to read and to understand and apply the scriptures as if it's merely a divine retelling of a few great men, of a few heroes. We see these inspired uh, men and women throughout our Bibles, and we hope that our sons and daughters become like them in one way or another. And these uh, supposed patriarchs that fill our Sunday school classrooms and click rooms with lessons about discipline and and maybe character and, and all these great lessons that we hope to instill in our children. And we draw particular attention to these heroes, men like Abraham and men like Isaac and men like Gideon and Moses and Joseph and Daniel and many others. Even so, go, uh, so far as singing songs about them, like dare to be a Daniel. <laughs> now, I, I, I don't wish this morning to undermine the merit of daring to be like a Daniel. Surely there is something to that. But I do believe that our affinity for heroes bleeds into our spiritual sensibilities and mars the true message God would have us see, God would have us hear and understand by looking at their lives. The Holy Spirit of God didn't include their lives, didn't include their stories in the Bible by accident. We know that. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the Spirit breathed out the words in the first place. And elsewhere we know that these men who wrote your Bibles in front of you were inspired and moved by the Holy Ghost. It wasn't by accident. But what's the lesson? Obviously there's something for us to glean from their lives. What's the lesson? And that's where we come to Hebrews chapter 11, what you've been going through. And most of us know as the hall of faith or uh, some people call it the, the, the hall of fame or whatever you want to call it. And nowhere, though, I think is Christian hero worship more plainly seen in, than in this record of men and women. This archive of men and women from various points of biblical history has been told and retold as, as the register of just God's models. That these are the models of faith that you are to be like. You need to be like a Moses and a Daniel and a Joseph and so forth. These guys are the standard. And it's to them we should follow. Them we should imitate But I think if you were to take some time, if you were a conscientious reader, you'll notice that uh, the people that are listed here, they have very dark and very spotty lives. They're not all clean. They're not all picture perfect. You can just look at, uh, in verse 21, Jacob, and you can remember all of his deception. He was a lying man. Or you can look at verse 23 in Moses, and you can't forget his murder, (laughs) Or we can look in verse uh, later on down in the chapter verse thirty one, you can look at Rahab and look at her promiscuity, or maybe even verse twenty nine and look at Israel and their constant unbelief. <laughs> and we might rightly wonder then how these people were ever included. This is the hall of faith, God's models. How did these guys get in this club? How did these guys get included? But then we also read like other men, men like Enoch or men like Abel and men like Joseph. And, and we, we seem to find a stark contrast that these guys are, have no question about why they're there. And then these other people, we think, how do they get in? Some should belong, we think, sometimes, and others shouldn't. And then this one such character I think we don't often question is Noah. We find him in verse 7. I'll read that for you. By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Now we know that Noah is a very distinguished Bible character. He is known for building the ark and bringing in the animals two by two, as it were. But besides our sort of colloquial understanding of this man, what I hope to instill this morning is sort of a deeper awareness of who he was and why we're still talking about him 3,000 odd years later. My aim isn't that we would emulate Noah, emulate this man from history, but that our eyes would be further opened to the marvelous grace that we see in his life and that we can see in ours too. And the first lesson we see is Noah's lesson of submission. And we see from verse 7, and we're talking about the ark, the great flood from earlier in Genesis Now Noah was a man of peculiar honor. He is also one like Enoch of whom it was said walked with God. Now that would be a great reputation in and of itself if you had the reputation and you had the legacy for all time that you walked with God. We know also from uh, the events of the flood that he was the one to usher in a new era of human history. He was providentially saved by, through the flood. And at the time of the flood, he was an old man. He was about 600 years old at the time of the flood. So he had already lived a long life of faith, a long life of continued dedication and commitment to God. Actually, you can turn there into Genesis chapter 6 really quick. Because I think it is important to see that... uh, Excuse me, Noah, the man of faith, a man who walked with God, had that reputation in a world that was continually corrupt. If you look at Genesis chapter 6 and look at verse 5, it says, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he made the man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. So in the midst of this great and corrupt and sinful world, Noah was living a life of faith. He was living a life of righteousness. Actually, in Second Peter, he's actually described as the preacher of righteousness. And if there were ever, I think, constructed a Mount Rushmore of sorts of great men of the Bible, I'm pretty sure Noah would be one of them. He would definitely be included uh, on, in that list. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, it says in Genesis 6, verse 8. He was given the warning of the impending flood, the, the, the coming judgment to come on the whole world. And he was given instructions on how to endure it. In Genesis 6, uh, 11 through the end of the chapter, really, he's given instruction and instruction after instruction on how to construct the ark and how to eventually save his family. And I love this lesson of submission because he doesn't really question much or at least we're not told that he questions much look at verse 22 that's uh, just like this simple evidence of faith it says thus did noah <laughs> after all these rules after all these instructions that god gives him he just says thus did noah such simple faith that noah displayed he courageously believed god Amidst all these mockings against all these criticisms and the jokes that were made about him. About this guy who, this crazy old kook who believed in a a flood that was going to cover the whole earth. About this rain that would last for 40 days and 40 nights. This crazy old man. (laughs) But he pressed forward in the midst of that joking, in the midst of that mocking. And I think it was... His belief of the things not yet seen that led to that salvation. Uh, Back in Hebrews 11 verse 7, that's what it says. It says, Noah being warned of God of things not seen as yet. You see, and so we see that great contrast, that great uh, parallel there from verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 1 of Hebrews 11 says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we see here, this is the lesson of submission that we see. The Noah's lesson of submission is actually a lesson of faith. And I think there's a misconception about faith as it being some sort of blind leap in the dark. That you're going off into the unknown and that you're going off into some sort of unseen space that you have no idea what's going to happen. And you're just jumping and hoping for the best. I would like to say that's categorically untrue. (laughs) Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Faith is a confident step forward in what you know about God. Faith is knowledge, it's not a blind leap. God never asks you to jump out into the unknown world. He just takes, he wants you to take his hand because of what you know about him. I think faith may step out into the unseen, sure. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't presume to know what's going to happen in the next hour, but I do know something about my God. I know that He is all-knowing, He is all-faithful, He is ever-gracious, and He has promised to never leave me or forsake me. And that's what God asks you to step out in knowing. You can know that about your God uh, no matter what is going on. That's faith. Stepping out into what you know about your Lord. And I very very much believe that Noah knew this. Noah believed this. And he pushed forward into this unknown, this unseen future because of what he knew about his God. Not because of anything he found in himself. And this led to salvation. The salvation of his whole family. And eventually, the recreation of the whole earth. Now... That all sounds nice and good. And if we were writing the story of Noah, I think it would end there. It would end with Genesis chapter 9 and verses 15 and 17 with God's covenant of the rainbow. Let me read those verses. Genesis 9 verse 15. It says, and this is God speaking, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh And the waters shall be no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud. And I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. If we were writing the story of Noah, we would stop the story there. We all as well. The flood has subsided. Noah and his family have been saved. And the Lord has given his pledge of grace and mercy to the world by the rainbow. And actually, it's quite picturesque. We've got the rainbow. Now all we need is the unicorns. And we have this really nice, sweet, and happy ending. Maybe they forgot to get in the ark. I don't know. But the happiness of this scene, I think, is just merely a prelude of what's to come. Because next we have Noah's lesson of salvation. And it's actually an odd lesson of salvation because, you see, we can't talk about Noah's faith, his exemplary faith, his otherworldly faith, I might say, without also mentioning his failure. And doing so, I think, would give us only a narrow view of not only this man of God, but also a narrow view of this God of grace. Because, you see, the next few verses in Genesis 9 seem to be so at odds with what we know about Noah. Look at verse 18, and the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And we find out here that Noah has taken up farming after the flood. He uh, specifically is tending to this vineyard. And this earth is newly created and similar to Adam. He is told to uh, cultivate and tend to this new earth. Previous in Genesis 9, we have similar commands to Noah and also Adam to be a man of the garden, a man of the soil, as it were. And he acts sort of as a second Adam. He's given that promise in Genesis 9-1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so like Adam, though, after this new creation, after the new world, we have a fall. Look at verse 20. And Noah began to be an husbandman, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Now, it's been a while since the events of God's covenant. It's been a while since the rainbow, long enough for Noah to begin farming, but also to begin uh, having a successful vineyard. Also long enough for him to begin producing and fermenting wine. So it's been a while. It's here also that we find out that Noah, I think, is not so great. He's not a hero. He's actually just a sinner, just like me and just like you. Noah succumbs to drunkenness. He succumbs to uh, open wickedness. And I don't think this was accidental. It wasn't like he didn't know what was going to happen. It's not that his drunken state led him to this. He failed to govern and control himself, leading to a moral failure that sought neither the good of others nor the good of himself. And here we see that Noah ruins himself with his drunkenness. But also I think it leads to the ruining of his family. Because just like the story of Achan from Joshua chapter 7, the, the sin of your heart doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. Look at verse 22. Or verse 21 again. And he drank the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his true brethren without you see, Ham, his youngest son, sees his father in his disgraceful state, and he does something extremely revealing, extremely revealing of his heart. He sees and he tells. He sees and it tells, and instead of mercifully helping and caring for his dad as he laid there in his drunken stupor, he, his first reaction was to make it known to his brothers, to gossip about it. To make it known that his dad was a disgrace. You see, I think Noah's blunder kind of brings out Ham's self-righteousness. By this, he was trying to say that, Look at how much better I am than my father. He has let himself get drunk, and I am not that way. I have self-control. And by reporting this and announcing this, he's hoping to prove and show to his brothers how much better he is. (laughs) This wasn't a boyish prank. This wasn't something innocent that Ham was doing. This was an opportunity for him to disparage his father's legacy. And I think we sometimes do the same, though. When we hear about scandals, when we hear about rumors, our society thrives on that. The 24-hour news is not really news. It's just reporting the next scandal in the world. It's reporting the next rumor, the next piece of gossip... And instead of caring for those involved oftentimes, I think we spread the news for all to hear so that everyone can joy and relish in their shame. But I'd like to say how unlike our Father this is. Because instead of condemning us and spreading the news of our disgrace when we're down, God acts like that good Samaritan who heals the brokenhearted, who hears the hurting, And that's what we see in verses 22 and 23. Look at the reaction of the brothers. And Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. So Shem and Japheth, they hear of what's going on, and instead of reacting in a way that would bring more disgrace to the family, they seek to correct it. They seek to not only correct it, but to have compassion on their dad. Instead of joking about it, they judiciously care for their father. Both Shem and Japheth understood, rightly understood, that this could be them. I think also from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, when we read, Wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. I think this might have been in their minds. (laughs) That none of us are immune to falling. They knew that. And I think they had grace on their father in this moment. I like what Martin Luther comments when he is commenting on this passage. He says that if the saints fall into sin, let us not be offended. Much less should we rejoice over the weakness of others, haughtily esteeming ourselves braver and wiser or holier than they, let us rather endure and cover up and even put on a good construction and excuse such errors insofar as we can, remembering that perhaps tomorrow we may suffer what happened to them today. We have to remember that none of us have a leg up on anyone else. (laughs) We are all sinners at the foot of the cross, and with that in mind, we have to remember that this could be us, that we are all just sinners saved by grace. Now, uh, this scene, though, I think begs the question, where's unclothed, intoxicated Noah in all our stories about him? (laughs) Where's this guy on the flannel boards in our Sunday school classrooms? (laughs) It seems odd, though, right now, right, that this guy who is known as the preacher of righteousness is the guy who is in a drunken stupor in his tent. But I think the fact is, this scene is not so at odds if you're really reading your Bible rightly. Because, you see, we often like to edit the Bible. We like to avoid the dark stuff. And we like to say, you know, uh, put the skeletons in the closet, Because even though it's human to mess up, I think it's even more human to try and cover up those messes. To sweep them under the rug. And if no one finds out, it's okay. It's all right. And I think that's what we often do with some passages of the Bible. (laughs) They're just too violent. They're too dark. They're too sordid. They're too messy. We can't touch those passages. We can't touch on them because they might be offended, uh, offensive. That's why I think we don't hear preaching from Genesis 19 or Genesis 34 or Judges 19 or on and on we can go. There's too much violence. There's too much darkness there. But I would like to say that's precisely why they're there. You see, stories like this are included in the Bible to show us how God manifests his mercy into our mess. Or I'd like to say it this way, that the dark background of man's sin brings out in greater relief the grace and the patience of our Heavenly Father. It is because of those dark stories that we can relish and revel in the grace that he so pronounces throughout his word. And you see, while we're obsessed with hiding our skeletons and putting them in the closet, God puts them front and center i like I like to say it this way, that, that the Bible is never afraid of airing its dirty laundry. <laughs> just read the genealogy of Christ. If you go to Matthew 1, you don't have to turn there, but just read the names that are listed there. And uh, the names there are just full of, of mess-ups and screw-ups and wrecks of lives. And they are in the line of Christ. Now, if the Bible were a man-made book... All of that wickedness, all of that vileness, I think, of, of our heroes, our great men, would have been ignored. It would have been excused. We would have never remembered the story of Noah if we wrote the Bible. But like I said earlier, this book was divinely inspired. It was breathed out by God. And I think that goes to the fact that we can read of their blunders. And I think the fact that we can read of all these fallings and these failings of the great men of faith further proves that this book wasn't a human work. It wasn't a work of man's wisdom. It was a work of divine inspiration. And I think all throughout, through these dark stories and even through the bright stories, God is trying to show us that this is who I am. I'm a God that meets people in the midst of their messy lives. We're given stories like this to show us the type of God we have. And it's not, I'm not trying to get you to find comfort in uh, more bad people doing bad things. It's not that it's, oh, we're all bad, so we can be bad. No, I'm saying that we find our comfort in seeing a God who doesn't utterly trash us when we do fall. That instead of casting us out and casting us off, God comes to us. And they further show us that our God isn't one who delights in punishment. Rather, as it says all throughout your Bible, He is ready to pardon, and He is gracious and merciful and slow to anger. That's the type of God that we serve. And that's why I think that we can say that, or let let me say it this way don't let the blunders of great men shake your confidence in the truth of the gospel. Don't let failures like Noah's shake your faith in the truth of the Bible. You see that. Even preachers today, I know of several preachers just off the top of my head that I could mention that have fallen. They had amazing ministries uh, for God. But for one reason or another, they fell. A moral failing, a moral failing in their family. And sometimes I think the world likes to say, Ha ha, look at that. See, I told you it wasn't true. I would like to tell them, no, that's the point. That's the point, that God saves sinners like that guy, and like you, and like me. Seeing the shortcomings of great men ought to cheer us with the type of God that we have, because God is not afraid to get his hands dirty. He reaches into the sin and into the filth of the world, and he saves sinners, and he redeems those who need to be saving. And we must note, too, also, I would like to say that Noah's biggest failure is after his greatest success. It's after his greatest success. And even afterwards, he's known as the preacher of righteousness. And I would like to say that that this startling truth, that if your theological system doesn't account for the fact that your biggest blunder is ahead of you, it's time for a new theological system. Think about that. If your theological system, your idea about God doesn't allow for the fact that my greatest moral failing may be ahead of me, then you don't believe in the God of the Bible. David was called a man after God's own heart well before he was with Bathsheba, and even well before he murdered Uriah. And he's even known as the man after God's own heart afterwards. All the great men of the Bible, they don't have flawless resumes. They, they, don't, uh, they aren't perfect. Noah had his drunkenness, as, we saw, as we've seen. Moses had his murder, as we mentioned. David, his adultery. And Paul had his persecution. And Peter had his denial. And so it goes. These are the great men of the Bible. Great, not because of their own greatness, of an intrinsic greatness, but because they have been redeemed by a great God. And that's why we can come to this truth that the world, unlike what Thomas Carlyle says, the world isn't a biography of a few great men. Its axis doesn't turn on the decisions of heroes, it actually turns on the confounding choice of God. Because God works in ways that are very much unlike our ways. He works completely different than how we think he should. And he continually does the opposite, right? You see, we've got it backwards. God doesn't go after heroes. He he doesn't go after the biggest people or the strongest people or the wisest people or the most qualified people. If he did, I wouldn't be up here this morning. God goes after the weak people. He goes after those who realize how small they are and how big he is. If you'll permit me, I'd like to read this, uh, this passage from uh, Charles Spurgeon, just because I think it's so good. He says, man chooses those who would be most helpful to him, and God chooses those to whom he can be the most helpful. We select those who may give us the best return, while God frequently selects those who most need his aid. And God selects those who are the worst because they are least deserving, so that his choice may be more clearly seen as an act of grace and not an act of merit. That's who God chooses. I I, I don't think God needs any more great men. He doesn't need any more uh, people who think they're heroes. He actively chooses and seeks out the outcasts. Just remember what his mission statement was. Do you remember his mission statement from Luke chapter 4? He said in Luke chapter four eighteen that the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. That was Jesus' first public declaration of his ministry. And it's very revealing of those to whom he would go after. And I think it reveals whom God has an affinity for. I think God has a fondness for the lost and the forgotten. And by using those who are smallest and weakest, God gives the greatest amount of glory. He uses those who are honest with themselves. And know that they're not heroes. They're not great men. And I would even like to say that there are no great men. There are only great sinners and an even greater God who seeks out, saves, and uses sinners. Instead of avoiding drunk and naked Noah, I'd rather us see how Noah was forgiven and only that he was chosen by God after his failure. And I pray that we would read the Bible not as a long story of great men doing great things for God, but rather as a long story of a good and gracious God reconciling himself to sinners. That's the story of your Bible. And that's the story of the world, of God making it down to sinners. I find great comfort and great joy in Hebrews chapter 11. Because I know that these men, these women were not great. They were not heroes. You don't have to be special or do something spectacular to be in this hall of faith. You just have to be a sinner. A sinner saved by grace. And you don't have to do something great. You just have to believe in grace. I think we can all in here do that. And if that's the case, we can all be great. Because God is great in us. Let's pray.